PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for September 2010. This month's research reports focus on interferential current therapy in the management of musculoskeletal pain, a clinical prediction rule for patients with neck pain, family priorities and needs of children and youth with cerebral palsy, joint kinematics in infants with Down syndrome, physical disability of sarcopenia in elderly people, self-report measures of mobility post-arthroplasty, caregiver involvement in upper limb treatment after subacute stroke, physical activity promotion in physical therapy, clinical interpretation of a lumbar computerized adaptive test, and Assessing Balance Function in Patients with Stroke. This month's perspective article focuses on Management of Musculoskeletal Pain. The September issue also includes an article in PTJ's LEAP, Linking Evidence and Practice series, School-Based Physical Activity and Fitness Promotion, by Dr. Susan Rassett, Dr. W. Todd Cade, and Laura Beckman. First, Effectiveness of Interferential Current Therapy in the Management of Musculoskeletal Pain, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Jorge Fuentes, Dr. Susan Armijo Olivo, Dr. David McGee, and Dr. Douglas Gross. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Interferential current is a common electrotherapeutic modality used to treat pain. Although interferential current is widely used, the available information regarding its clinical efficacy is debatable. The aim of this systematic review and meta-analysis was to analyze the available information regarding the efficacy of interferential current in the management of musculoskeletal pain. Randomized controlled trials were obtained through a computerized search of the following bibliographic databases, CINAHL, Cochrane Library, Embase, Medline, Pedro, Scopus, and Web of Science from 1950 to February 8, 2010. Two independent reviewers screened the abstracts found in the databases. Methodological quality was assessed using a compilation of items included in different scales related to rehabilitation research. The mean difference with 95% confidence interval was used to quantify the pooled effect. A chi-square test for heterogeneity was performed. A total of 2,235 articles were found. 20 studies fulfilled the inclusion criteria. Of these 20 studies, 7 articles assessed the use of interferential current on joint pain. 9 articles evaluated the use of interferential current on muscle pain. 3 articles evaluated the use of interferential current on soft tissue shoulder pain and one article examined the use of interferential current on postoperative pain. Three of the 20 studies were considered to be of high methodological quality. Fourteen studies were considered to be of moderate 
methodological quality, and three studies were considered to be of poor methodological quality. Fourteen studies were included in the meta-analysis. Interferential current as a supplement to another intervention seems to be more effective than a control treatment for reducing pain at discharge and more effective than a placebo treatment for reducing pain at the three-month follow-up. However, it is unknown whether the analgesic effect of interferential current is superior to that of the concomitant interventions. Interferential current alone was not significantly better than placebo or other therapy at discharge or follow-up. Results must be considered with caution due to the low number of studies that used interferential current alone. In addition, the heterogeneity across studies and methodological limitations prevent conclusive statements regarding analgesic efficacy. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary, and two e-appendixes for this article are available online. Lead author Jorge Fuentes is a Ph.D. student in the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Catholic University of Maule in Talca, Chile. Next, examination of a clinical prediction rule to identify patients with neck pain likely to benefit from thoracic spine thrust manipulation and a general cervical range of motion exercise. Multi-center randomized clinical trial by Dr. Joshua Cleland, Dr. Paul Mintgen, Dr. Kristen Carpenter, Dr. Julie Fritz, Dr. Paul Glenn, Dr. Julie Whitman, and Dr. John Childs. A clinical prediction rule purported to identify patients with neck pain who are likely to respond to thoracic spine thrust manipulation has recently been developed, but it has yet to be validated. The purpose of this multi-center randomized clinical trial was to examine the validity of this clinical prediction rule. 140 patients with a primary report of neck pain were randomly assigned to one of two groups, the exercise-only group, which received five sessions of stretching and strengthening, or the manipulation and exercise group, which received two sessions of thoracic spine manipulation and cervical range of motion exercise, followed by three sessions of stretching and strengthening exercise. Data on disability and pain were collected at baseline, at one week, at four weeks, and at six months. The primary aim, treatment group by time, by status on the prediction rule, was examined using a linear mixed model with repeated measures. Treatment group time and status on the rule, as well as all possible two-way and three-way interactions, were modeled as fixed effects with disability and pain as the dependent variable. Effect sizes were calculated for both disability and pain at each follow-up period. There was no three-way interaction for either disability or pain. A two-way group-by-time interaction existed for both disability and pain. Pairwise comparisons of disability demonstrated that significant differences existed at each follow-up period between the manipulation and exercise group and the exercise-only group. The patients who received manipulation exhibited lower pain scores at the one-week follow-up period. The effect sizes were moderate for disability at each follow-up period and were moderate for pain at the one-week follow-up. A limitation of the study is that different exercise approaches may have resulted in a different outcome. 
the results of the current study did not support the validity of the previously developed clinical prediction rule. However, the results demonstrated that compared with patients who received exercise only, patients with mechanical neck pain who received thoracic spine manipulation and exercise exhibited significantly greater improvements in disability at both the short and long-term follow-up periods and in pain at the one-week follow-up. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary and is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Mark Hancock. Lead author Dr. Joshua Cleland is professor in the physical therapy department at Franklin Pierce University and physical therapist in rehabilitation services at Concord Hospital, both in Concord, New Hampshire. Next, family priorities for activity and participation of children and youth with cerebral palsy by Dr. Lisa Shirello, Dr. Robert Palisano, Dr. Jill Maggs, Dr. Margot Orlin, Dr. Nihad Almazri, Dr. Lin Ju Kang, and Hui Ju Chang. Understanding family priorities for children and youth with cerebral palsy is essential for family-centered service. The purposes of this study were, one, to identify family priorities for activity and participation in children and youth with cerebral palsy, and two, to determine differences based on age and gross motor functional classification system, GMFCS, level. 585 children and youth with cerebral palsy and their caregivers participated at regional children's hospitals. The children and youth were 2 to 21 years of age. 56% were male and 44% were female. Their caregivers, 80% of whom were mothers, had a mean age of 40 years. The Canadian Occupational Performance Measure was administered to caregivers to identify their priorities for their children. The priorities were coded into three categories, daily activities, productivity, and leisure, and 13 subcategories. The GMFCS levels were determined by assessors who met the criterion for reliability. Friedman and Kruskal-Wallace one-way analyses of variance were used to examine differences in priorities. Parents of children in all age groups and GMFCS levels 2 to 5 identified more priorities for daily activities. Parents of school-aged children and youth had more priorities for productivity than parents of younger children. For parents of children in all age groups and motor function levels, self-care was the most frequent priority subcategory. 61% of parents identified at least one priority related to mobility. The study had the following limitation. It did not include a qualitative analysis of priorities of parents. Parents' priorities for their children and youth with cerebral palsy differed depending on age and gross motor function level. However, the most frequent priority for all age groups was daily activities. Interviews with families are recommended for identifying outcomes for activity and participation and developing an intervention plan. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Lisa Shirello is Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences at Drexel University and a member of the scientific staff of Shriners Hospitals for Children, both in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania.
Next, effects of various treadmill interventions on the development of joint kinematics in infants with Down syndrome by Dr. Jianhua Wu, Dr. Julia Luper, Dr. Dale Ulrich, and Dr. Rosa Angulo Barroso. Infants with Down syndrome have delayed walking and produce less coordinated walking patterns. The aim of this study was to investigate whether two treadmill interventions would have different influences on the development of joint kinematic patterns in infants with Down syndrome. Thirty infants with Down syndrome were randomly assigned to one of two groups, a lower-intensity generalized treadmill training group or a higher-intensity individualized treadmill training group and trained until walking onset. Twenty-six participants 13 in each group completed a one-year gait follow-up assessment. During the gait follow-up assessment, reflective markers were placed bilaterally on the participants to measure the kinematic patterns of the hip, knee, and ankle joints. The authors examined both the timing and the magnitude of peak extension and flexion at the hip, knee, and ankle joints of the two groups, as well as peak adduction and abduction at the hip joint. Both the lower-intensity group and the higher-intensity group showed significantly advanced development of joint kinematics at the gait follow-up. In the higher-intensity group, peak ankle plantar flexion occurred at or before toe-off, and the duration of the forward thigh swing after toe-off increased. This study had the following limitation. Joint kinematics in the lower extremities were evaluated in this study. It would be interesting to investigate the effect of treadmill intervention on kinematic patterns in the trunk and arm movement. The timing of peak ankle plantar flexion before toe-off in the higher-intensity group implies further benefits from the higher-intensity intervention. The higher-intensity group may use mechanical energy transfer better at the end of stance and may show decreased hip muscle forces and moments during walking. It was concluded that the higher-intensity intervention can accelerate the development of joint kinematic patterns in infants with Down syndrome within one year after walking onset. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Jianhua Wu is assistant professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. Next, sarcopenia, cardiopulmonary fitness, and physical disability in Community-Dwelling Elderly People by Dr. Ming-Hui Shen, Dr. Xu Ko Kuo, and Dr. Ying-Tai Wu. Sarcopenia refers to the loss of skeletal muscle mass with aging. It is believed to be associated with functional impairment and physical disability. The purposes of this cross-sectional investigation were 1. to compare the physical activity, muscle strength, cardiopulmonary fitness, and physical disability in community-dwelling elderly people with sarcopenia, borderline sarcopenia, and normal skeletal muscle mass in Taiwan, and two, to test the hypothesis that sarcopenia is associated with physical disability and examine whether the association is mediated by decreased muscle strength or cardiopulmonary fitness. 275 community-dwelling elderly people 148 men and 127 women who were 65 years of age or older participated in the study. The participants were recruited from communities in the district of Zhangzheng, Taipei. 
predicted skeletal muscle mass was estimated using a bioelectrical impedance analysis equation. The skeletal muscle mass index was calculated by dividing skeletal muscle mass by height squared. Physical disability was assessed using the Hronian Activity Restriction Scale. Physical activity was assessed using a seven-day recall physical activity questionnaire. Cardiopulmonary fitness was assessed using a three-minute step test. Grip strength was measured to represent muscle strength. Cardiopulmonary fitness was significantly lower in elderly people with sarcopenia than in those with normal skeletal muscle mass indexes. Grip strength and daily energy expenditure were not significantly different between the participants with sarcopenia and those with normal skeletal muscle mass indexes. The odds ratio for physical disability between the participants with sarcopenia and those with normal skeletal muscle mass indexes was 3.03. The odds ratio decreased and the significant difference diminished after controlling for cardiopulmonary fitness. Because of the cross-sectional nature of the study design, a causal relationship between sarcopenia and physical activity, cardiopulmonary fitness, and physical disability cannot be established. Sarcopenia was associated with physical disability in elderly men. The association between sarcopenia and physical disability was mediated to a large extent by decreased cardiopulmonary fitness. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Minghui Xian is assistant professor in the School and Graduate Institute of Physical Therapy, College of Medicine, at National Taiwan University in Taipei, Taiwan. Next, quantifying self-report measures overestimation of mobility scores post-arthroplasty by Professor Paul Stratford, Professor Deborah Kennedy, Dr. Monica Malley, and Dr. Norma McIntyre. Self-reports of function may systematically overestimate the ability of patients to move around post-arthroplasty. The purpose of this study was to estimate the magnitude of systematic differences in scores on the lower extremity functional scale and Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index physical function subscale before and after primary total knee or hip arthroplasty by referencing the values to six-minute walk test distances and timed up-and-go test times. This study was a secondary analysis of data from a prospective cohort study. The lower extremity functional scale Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index physical function subscale, six-minute walk test, and timed up-and-go test were administered to 85 patients pre-arthroplasty and once at 9 to 13 weeks post-arthroplasty. Regression analysis was applied using a robust error term for clustered data. The self-report measures were the dependent variables. Performance measures, occasion, pre-arthroplasty or post-arthroplasty, and performance measure by occasion were the independent variables. Using these variables, the researchers examined three propositions. One, the relationship between self-report and performance measures is identical pre-arthroplasty and post-arthroplasty. That is, the regression lines are coincident. Two, the relationship differs between occasions but is consistent. That is, the regression lines are parallel. Three, the relationship is not consistent. That is, the regression lines are not parallel. 
For all analyses, the results supported the second proposition, that is, the relationship between self-report and performance measures differed between occasions but was consistent. The systematic differences varied by location of arthroplasty but were similar for both performance tests. For the lower extremity functional scale, the difference was approximately 11 points for patients who received total knee arthroplasty and 13 points for patients who received total hip arthroplasty. For the Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index Physical Function Subscale, the difference was approximately 12 points for patients who received total knee arthroplasty and 19 points for patients who received total hip arthroplasty. These differences exceed the minimal clinically important change for an individual patient. This study has the following limitation. The findings are specific to 9 to 13 weeks post-arthroplasty. Dependence on scores of self-report measures alone without knowledge of the magnitude of the identified systematic differences will result in overestimating the ability of patients to move around post-arthroplasty. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary and is the subject of two invited commentaries, the first by Dr. Ryan Misner and the second by Dr. Yong Haopua and Dr. Kim Benno. Lead author Paul Stratford is professor in the School of Rehabilitation Science and is associate member in the Department of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics, both at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Next, the role of caregiver involvement in upper limb treatment in individuals with subacute stroke by Dr. Joycelyn Harris, Dr. Janice Eng, Dr. William Miller, and Dr. Andrew Dawson. Initial severity of upper limb motor impairment and exercise intensity are important predictors of improved upper limb function during stroke rehabilitation. Initial severity of motor impairment, however, is not modifiable by rehabilitation, and increased one-on-one -on -one treatment is not always feasible. Alternative methods to increase intensity and improve upper limb function are needed. The purpose of this study was to examine caregiver involvement in upper limb treatment as a method to improve upper limb function. This study was a secondary analysis of a multi-site randomized controlled trial for upper limb recovery during subacute inpatient stroke rehabilitation. The data used for the analysis came from 50 individuals with subacute stroke who were randomly assigned to the experimental group which received upper limb exercise. Outcome variables were measured at baseline and at completion of the four-week intervention. Group comparisons between participants with caregiver support and participants without caregiver support were done using an analysis of variance. Using the Fugelmeyer Upper Limb Motor Impairment Scale and time spent in treatment as a measure of intensity as covariates, a multivariate regression analysis was performed to determine the additive value of caregiver support on upper limb function as measured by change scores on the Shadok arm and hand activity inventory and the motor activity log. Group comparisons revealed that participants with caregiver support had improved upper limb function compared with those without caregiver support and were more likely to increase the amount of time spent doing exercise. The multiple regression analysis showed that significant predictors of upper limb improvement were 
Fugelmeyer score, time spent in treatment, and caregiver support. In the regression models, caregiver support accounted for 5% to 9% of upper limb improvement. The study had the following limitation. Support was coded as a dichotomous variable, and thus the degree of support or qualitative nature of support was not captured. Involvement of caregivers was a determinant of improved upper limb function over and above initial severity of motor impairment and exercise intensity. Further research is needed to determine the optimal qualitative and quantitative elements of caregiver involvement in stroke rehabilitation in order to maximize results. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Joycelyn Harris is postdoctoral fellow at the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. She was a doctoral student in the graduate program in rehabilitation sciences at the University of British Columbia during this study. Next, physical activity promotion in the physical therapy setting, perspectives from practitioners and students by Dr. Deborah Shirley, Dr. Hitta Vanderplu, and Dr. Adrian Bauman. Physical inactivity is a major risk factor for chronic disease. Primary healthcare practitioners are well-placed to promote a physically active lifestyle. The perceptions and practice of physical therapists on their role in physical activity promotion are not well known. A cross-sectional survey was conducted to determine the knowledge, confidence, role perception, barriers, feasibility, and counseling practice of physical therapists and physical therapist students regarding the promotion of non-treatment physical activity for better health. In 2008, 321, or 54 percent, of a random sample of all physical therapists registered in New South Wales, Australia, responded to a survey on their knowledge, confidence, role perception, barriers, feasibility, and counseling practice with regard to promoting a physically active lifestyle to their patients. 279 physical therapist students completed the same survey, but without the questions on barriers and counseling practice. Physical therapists and physical therapist students consider that it is part of their role to give their patients non-treatment physical activity advice. Overall, they reported having adequate knowledge and skills to undertake this role. Incorporating advice into normal consultations is deemed the most feasible form of lifestyle physical activity promotion in physical therapist practice. This study has the following limitations. One, the cross-sectional nature makes it difficult to determine cause-and-effect relationships. And two, some selection bias may have occurred as the physical therapists who completed the questionnaires may have been those most interested in physical activity promotion. Physical therapist practice appears to be an excellent avenue for promoting a physically active lifestyle and could potentially play an important public health role. Lead author Dr. Deborah Shirley is Coordinator of Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy in the Discipline of Physiotherapy in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Sydney in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. Next, clinical interpretation of outcome measures generated from a lumbar computerized adaptive test by Dr. Ying Ji Wang, Dr. Dennis L. Hart, Mark Wernicke, Professor Paul Stratford, and Jerome Meduski. A computerized adaptive test 
provides a way of efficiently estimating functional status in people with specific impairments. The purpose of this study was to describe meaningful interpretations of functional status estimated using a lumbar computerized adaptive test that was developed using items from the back pain functional scale and selected physical functioning items. This was a prospective longitudinal cohort study of 17,439 patients with lumbar spine impairments in 377 outpatient rehabilitation clinics in 30 states. Patient self-reports of functional status were assessed using a lumbar computerized adaptive test with a scale of 0 to 100. Outcome data were interpreted using four methods. First, the standard error of the estimate was used to construct a 95% confidence interval for each estimated score on the computerized adaptive test. Second, percentile ranks of functional status scores were presented. Third, two threshold approaches, minimal detectable change and clinically important change, were used to define individual patient-level change. Fourth, a functional staging model, the back pain function classification system, was developed and applied. On average, precision of a single score was estimated by functional status score plus or minus 4. Based on score distribution, 25th, 50th, and 75th percentile ranks corresponded to intake functional status scores of 44, 51, and 59 respectively. 25th, 50th, and 75th percentile ranks corresponded to discharge functional status scores of 54, 62, and 74, respectively. A value of 8 or more for minimal detectable change with a 95% confidence interval represented statistically reliable change. Receiver operating characteristic analyses supported that changes in functional status scores of five or more represented minimal clinically important improvement. The back pain function classification system appeared clinically logical and provided insight for clinical interpretation of patient progress. This study has the following limitation. The back pain function classification system should be assessed for validity using prospective designs. Results may improve clinical interpretation of computerized adaptive test-generated outcome measures and assist clinicians using patient-reported outcomes during physical therapist practice. Lead author Dr. Ying Zhi Wang is assistant professor in the Department of Occupational Science and Technology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and is senior data analyst at Focus on Therapeutic Outcomes, Inc. in Knoxville, Tennessee. Next. Development of a Computerized Adaptive Test for Assessing Balance Function in Patients with Stroke by Professor I. Ping Shui, Zhen Hong Chen, Professor Chun Hao Wang, Dr. Cheng Tai Chen, Dr. Ching Fan Shu, Dr. Wen Chung Wang, Dr. Win Shan Hu, and Dr. Ching Lin She. An efficient and precise measure of balance is needed to improve administration efficiency and to reduce the assessment burden for patients. The purpose of this study was to develop a computerized adaptive testing system for assessing balance function in an efficient, reliable, and valid fashion in patients with stroke. Two cross-sectional prospective studies were conducted in the Departments of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation in six hospitals. The participants were inpatients and outpatients who were receiving rehabilitation. 
A balance item pool of 41 items was developed on the basis of predefined balance concepts, expert opinions, and field testing. Five raters administered the items to 764 patients. An item response theory model was fit to the data, and the item parameters were estimated. A simulation study was used to determine the performance, for example, the reliability and efficiency of the balance computerized adaptive test. The balance computerized adaptive test and the Berg balance scale were then tested on another independent sample of 56 patients to determine the concurrent validity and time needed for administration. Seven items did not meet the model's expectations and were excluded from further analysis. The remaining 34 items formed the item bank of the balance computerized adaptive test. Two stopping rules, six items or less, or a reliability coefficient of greater than 0.9, were set for the computerized adaptive test. The simulation study showed that the patient's balance scores estimated by the computerized test had an average reliability value of 0.94. The scores obtained from the computerized adaptive test were closely associated with those of the full item set. The scores of the balance computerized adaptive test were highly correlated with those of the Berg balance scale. The average time needed to administer the balance test was 83 seconds, which was only 18% of the time to administer the Berg balance scale. The convenience sampling of both samples may limit the generalization of the results. Further psychometric investigation of the balance computerized adaptive test is needed. The results provide strong evidence that the balance computerized adaptive test is efficient, reliable, and valid for patients with stroke. Lead author Ai Ping Shui is associate professor at the School of Occupational Therapy, College of Medicine at National Taiwan University and in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the National Taiwan University Hospital, both in Taipei, Taiwan. This month's perspective article is. Individual expectation, an overlooked but pertinent factor in the treatment of individuals experiencing musculoskeletal pain, by Dr. Joel Bialowski, Dr. Mark Bishop, and Dr. Joshua Cleland. Physical therapists consider many factors in the treatment of patients with musculoskeletal pain. The current literature suggests that expectation is an influential component of clinical outcomes related to musculoskeletal pain that physical therapists frequently do not account for. The purpose of this clinical perspective is to highlight the potential role of expectation in the clinical outcomes associated with the rehabilitation of individuals experiencing musculoskeletal pain. The discussion focuses on the definition and measurement of expectation, the relationship between expectation and outcomes related to musculoskeletal pain conditions, the mechanisms through which expectation may alter musculoskeletal pain conditions. And suggested ways in which clinicians may integrate the current literature regarding expectation into clinical practice. This article is the subject of a discussion podcast. Lead author Dr. Joel Bialowski is clinical assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and in the Center for Pain Research and Behavioral Health, both at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 
593-7825.